Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. I'm Damon, and this is episode 43 The Romanovs Divided, part 3 Sophia and Golitsyn. Okay, so last time out, we spent most of the episode looking at the initial part of Sophia's seemingly half baked plan to wrest control of the Russian state away from the Narishkin branch of the Romanov family and put the Miloslavsky branch of the Romanov family back in charge. And we saw that by early June 1682, using mainly the force of her own character, but also with the chance assistance of a few thousand Streltsy mutineers, she'd got part almost of the way there. The rightful heir, according to primogeniture anyway, her sickly and some say blind 16-year-old brother Ivan, who, to be honest, lived in his own world and wasn't really aware of what was going on. Well, he was now Tsar Ivan V. And because he was effectively incapacitated, as part of the deal, Sophia had managed to get herself appointed as regent and she had also made her favourite, and some were saying her lover, Prince Vasily Golitsyn, head of foreign affairs. And so the Miloslavskis were back, where they thought they belonged. Well, not quite though, because Sophia's master plan, or stroke deal, had involved her making a couple of compromises, or more factually, a compromise and a half. The main one being that there were, of course, two Tsars in place instead of the traditional one, and Tsar number two was the 11-year-old, physically robust and mentally astute Peter, Natalia Narishkina's son. But Peter being one of the Tsars was the least of her current worries, because the second compromise, or the half a compromise, was that to keep the Streltsy on the side, she'd sort of agreed with their new commander, the power-hungry Ivan Kovansky, who was also an old believer, by the way, 
the Exar Alexes and ex-Patriarch Nikon's religious reforms would be up for repealing. And she'd also implied, or led him to believe, that he would be a key part of her new regime. So that's where we got up to. This week, in the last of the Romanov's Divided mini-series, we'll be covering Sofia and Golitsyn as they first attempt to neutralise Kovansky's influence and then look to bolster their regime via the tried and trusted method of introducing reforms on the home front and making sure that Russia's borders and territory were secure and, if possible, extended. All in the name of the joint czars, of course. Before we start, though, I just want to remind you that the next episode is the State of the Nation Stroke Listener's Questions Special, or just State of the Nation, depending on how many listeners' questions I get. So the aim is to get this episode out on either the 28th of July, which is next week, or the 4th of August, which is the week after. So if you have a question about anything related to Russian history, then get it to me by Thursday, the 21st of July, 2022, and I'll make sure it's included. Obviously, if you listen to today's episode after the 4th of August, then none of this will have any relevance at all, and you can just ignore it. Okay, so there are no other announcements or messages this week, so let's crack on and do some history of Russia. Cathedral of the Dormitian, Moscow, Sunday the 25th of June 1682, and a double coronation is taking place. And what's more, after the recent slew of seismic upheavals, it manages to proceed to plan. Sophia, the great sovereign lady, has bowed to tradition and is watching events from behind a screen, and her right-hand man, Vasily Golitsyn, is carrying the royal scepters, and by the end of the day, Alexei's sons have both been created czars and will reign jointly as Ivan V and Peter I, with their elder sister, stroke half-sister, as regent. So the pomp and ceremony activities have been ticked off the list, and now it's time for Sophia to knuckle down and start running the country. But before she can do that, she needs to sort out the Kovansky situation. So the meeting that I mentioned in the last episode went ahead in early July. And, by all accounts, it was a bit of a corker. Although you wouldn't have necessarily thought so if you'd looked at the list of attendees before battle commenced. In the red corner were Kovansky and a motley collection of grizzled, streltsy old believers. Well, that's how I imagine it anyway. And in the blue corner, it was Sophia, her sister Martha, and two of her aunts. Yep, that was it. Just the four of them. Golitsyn wasn't present, and neither were the two Tsars. So Kovansky, either ignoring or forgetting that he'd asked for this meeting to be public, and probably thinking that it was going to be a walk in the park anyway, went straight on to the attack and bluntly asked when the Sovereign Lady's late father's religious reforms were going to be binned. Sophia hit back straight away. They weren't. Otherwise, what was the point of Tsars and their decrees? And who was running the country anyway? Kovansky then muttered something about Sophia being better off in a convent, which was actually quite far-sighted of him. 
but she countered this jibe with one of her own regarding the recent troubles and how it was all down to the Streltsy and their useless, ineffective officers, which was rather audacious of her, to say the least. And abruptly, the meeting ended there, seemingly in deadlock. But not long afterwards, Sophia, showing that she meant business, started a widespread purge of the old believers, the same purge which coincidentally saw the demise of her old friend, the Archpriest of Arkham. So as she'd done many times before, Sophia had used the tactic of going straight for the jugular because she'd realised that when she went directly on the attack, no one really knew how to deal with her or had either the balls or the wherewithal to call her bluff and cut through the bluster. Anyway, there are two versions of what happened next. In the first, Sophia was desperate to get away from Moscow and so she embarked upon a progress with the two Tsars to numerous monasteries and palaces sort of in the greater Moscow region, leaving Kovansky in charge back in the Kremlin. She then engineered a situation that Kovansky either couldn't or wouldn't comply with. She wanted a detachment of Strelsey troops sent to her as a royal bodyguard. And when he failed to come up with the goods, had him summoned, arrested and beheaded. But it's version two of events that makes more sense to me. Kovansky made a move with Streltsy's support to replace Sofia as regent, with himself, of course, causing her to flee Moscow with Ivan and Peter. Safely away from the capital, Sofia then arranged for a couple of non-Streltsy army regiments to come to her aid, and only then did Kovansky fall rather stupidly into a trap. Either way, he's gone. And for the time being, the Streltsy have got the message, no doubt aided by the, aided by the fact that Sophia had also resolved the missing wages situation. But, and as will become clear, they've also got long memories, as does, coincidentally, the younger of the two Tsars. But again, we'll come to all of that. So let's just pause there and take stock. It's now late summer 1682, and since Tsar Fyodor's untimely demise, either in late April or early May, Sophia by hook or by crook has rather cleverly, or rather luckily, or both, engineered a situation or a coup d'etat, whereby she is the de facto head of the Russian state and regent for the two Tsars, Ivan and Peter. The Streltsy mutineers and the old believers have been dealt with, and at her side is the urbane, sophisticated foreign minister, Golitsyn, who is now, to all intents and purposes, her chief advisor, and who will, in effect, become the leading statesman in the land, and will be viewed by most, in Russia and abroad, as the real power behind the throne, or, strictly speaking, the real power behind the power behind the throne. So now all that Sophia and Galitsyn had to do was to decide how they were going to use that power to run the largest country in the world, whilst keeping the Miloslavsky Romanovs in the driving seat, and whilst the first was no easy feat, it would be the latter that would prove to be the more difficult for a couple of fundamental reasons. And those are, number one, regencies didn't tend to last that long, and the only happy ending on the cards for the Miloslavskis would be if the elder of the two Tsars, Ivan, was somehow married off and then managed to somehow produce an heir. And then number two, if we are to believe most of the sources, no one really liked Sophia. 
People found her character and her way of going about things difficult to deal with. To most, she was an overbearing, stolid, plain-looking pain in the backside. Plus, her relationship with Galitzin, which would increasingly, increasingly become viewed as romantic rather than professional, was starting to become an irritant. And that's the image of Sophia that has come down to us across the ages. I'll put a portrait of her up on the website and you see what you think. But there is a different view, and one which I think is probably nearer the mark. Others, both at the time and in the future, saw a very capable, educated and determined woman who, in a man's world, and hamstrung by the Terem system, gave as good as she got. And as for the rumours about her and Galitzin, well, apart from a couple of questionable, and I have to admit, rather gushing letters in the language of the time, there is no real hard factual evidence that Sophia and Galitzin were anything other than political soulmates, who both liked and trusted one another. Sophia probably was also enamoured to a degree by the worldly wise Galitzin, who was married, 14 years her senior, and perhaps represented a kind of father figure. Think Viscount Melbourne and the young Queen Victoria here, or maybe even Reagan and Thatcher, although that could be pushing the point just a bit. Anyway, against this backdrop of a whiff of scandal and long-term uncertainty, the Regency administration was determined to make a good show of things, and spent the rest of 1682 and 1683 consolidating its position and carrying out the obligatory round of domestic reforms, i.e. continuing Fyodor's replacement of Moscow's timber buildings with stone, plus the building of the first stone bridge across the Moskva River, and making a few minor updates to the legal code. So, for example, the detention policy regarding runaway peasants was relaxed, which caused some minor dissatisfaction amongst the nobles, and she also did away with the custom or practice of live burial, which had been used to punish women who had murdered their husbands. She also dabbled with some minor military reforms. Well, it's what you do, isn't it? And championed the creation of the Slavonic Greek Latin Academy, which was one of the first Russian institutions for higher education and learning. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In 1686, Russia joined the latest version of the Anti-Turkish Holy League, 
which, if you remember, had been originally formed back in 1571 to combat Ottoman naval expansion in the Mediterranean. The latest iteration, put together by Poland-Lithuania, the Habsburg Empire and the Republic of Venice in 1684, was specifically aimed at checking the Sultan's land-based military expansion and had been brought about as a direct result of the Ottoman army reaching the gates of Vienna in the previous year. But Sofia and Galitzin hadn't just joined up for the sake of it or to look good on the world stage, although Russia did for the first time open missions and embassies in 11 European capitals. No, they knew that of all the European states in the region, Poland-Lithuania was the most nervous and impacted when it came to further Ottoman expansion. And so they used the Commonwealth's fears to obtain a favourable position as a pretext for joining the League. As would become clear in the Treaty of Eternal Peace, which Russia and the Commonwealth signed later in 1686, which saw all of Russia's recent acquisitions in the old Rus territories, including Kiev, being recognised by Poland, Lithuania as being both legal and permanent. However, on the flip side, a condition of joining the League was that, by default, Russia was expected to actually do some kind of anti-Ottoman sabre-rattling. And so, in 1687, determined to show that the Regency meant business and hopefully acquire some more land into the bargain, a Galitsyn-led Russian army departed Moscow and started marching south towards the Dnieper and the border with Turkey. And for the time being, we'll leave him there because we need to jump back a couple of years to January 1684 and Moscow, where there had been a royal wedding. The lucky bridegroom was the almost 18-year-old, feeble in body and mind, Tsar Ivan V. The lucky bride was the active, healthy and by all accounts intelligent 19-year-old Praskovia Fyodorovna Soltikova. So you might be thinking that something doesn't quite add up here and you'd be right. All is not as it should be because young Praskovia had to be persuaded, cajoled and some say forced into the marriage which was all part of Sofia and Golitsyn's master plan. Incidentally, Praskovia, who had at one point been in the running to be Tsar Fyodor's second wife, had to go through the charade of the bride show but this would be the last time that this archaic and embarrassing practice would be used in Russia. So, back to Sofia and Galitsyn's master plan then, which was simple and goes something like this. So, step number one, get Ivan married off. Step number two, hopefully, a male heir is produced. Obviously, nine months later or whenever. Step number three, Ivan is retired off into the background. Step number four, Peter is bundled off to a monastery. Step number five, Praskovia nominally acts as the regent to her young son, under the control of Sophia and Galitsyn, of course. And step number six, well, it's not really a step really, but long live the Miloslavskis, long live Russia. But I've said it before, and I'll say it again many times. We plan and God laughs, because for five years... For understandable and probably obvious reasons, and I'll leave those to your imagination, nothing happened. 
No children were born, no heir was produced. Eventually, though, in 1689, some five years after the wedding, Praskovia mysteriously became pregnant, much to the relief of Sophia and Golitsyn, whose regime by that time was starting to come under a degree of pressure. And that pressure was coming from two separate directions, which, to a point, would become interlinked. The first was that Galitzin's Ottoman campaign of summer 1687, the aim of which had been to invade and occupy the Tartar-held, yeah, and I'm back to pronouncing it Tartar, uh, Crimean Peninsula, had ended in abject failure, mainly due to the fact that the Tartars had used scorched-earth tactics in the borderlands, burning crops and poisoning water sources, which deprived the Russian army and its horses of food and water. And so Golitsyn had to give up the ghost, but at least he had tried, and at least his attempt had put Russia on the offensive. Sophia ensured that he returned to a hero's welcome by organising a series of embarrassing, over-the-top celebrations in Moscow, but anyone who was anyone could see that this was very much a case of putting just a bit too much lipstick on a very large pig. And unfortunately for the Regency, one of those anyones back in Moscow by early 1689 was the now married 17-year-old giant of a young man, Tsar Peter I. Now Peter simply detested Sophia and the actions she had taken or caused others to take back in 1682 to get the Miloslavsky faction back in power particularly the cold-blooded murder of Artemon Matveyev, which had happened right in front of him and which he had never forgotten. And now here she was, trying to dress up the Crimean debacle as some kind of heroic victory. Peter was coldly seething, if you can coldly seethe. I mean, he was the Tsar, or one of them, and so he decided to up the ante. He started to ask difficult questions, and raise objections to the Regency regime's policies, whilst in the background he was slowly and carefully starting to build his own covert, Narishkin-centred power base. At first, Sevilla's response had been to ignore the problem. She persuaded herself that this was just adolescent chest-beating on Peter's part, something perhaps he would grow out of in time, and anyway, he seemed to be fully occupied with his shipbuilding mates in the German quarter, and with the training of his own personal guard regiments, the latter having been formed by Peter back in 1683 as a kind of toy army with which he was obsessed. But by 1688 the balance was noticeably shifting, and as mentioned, Peter himself was now married to a certain Eudoxia Lopuchina, and what would happen if she had a son? Sophia and Galitzin were concerned. And so they explored the option of making Sophia the head of state, and they reached out to the Streltsy to gauge their support. But, after the way that they'd been dealt with back in 1682, the Streltsy made it perfectly clear that no help would be coming from their direction. Once bitten, twice shy. Never mind though, because, as mentioned, Praskovia, Tsar Ivan's wife, was nearing the end of her pregnancy, and if all went well, by the spring of 1689, there would be a new, healthy, 
Miroslavsky Romanov on the scene. Plus, preparations were being made for another Crimean campaign in the early summer. And also, out in the Far East, Russia and Manchu China, who for the past couple of years had been bickering over which bits of land belonged to whom, were planning to negotiate a deal recognising the Amur River as the boundary between the two states. And so with a new heir, a victory over the Ottomans, a real one this time, and a Far Eastern territorial right and the Far Eastern territorial rights protected, the Regency regime could nip all of this in the bud, prolong its tenure, and Peter could be tolerated or dealt with from a position of strength. What could possibly go wrong? On the 20th of March, Praskovia went into labour and the next day gave birth to a daughter, Maria. And by the July, Galitsyn was back in Moscow after another failure in the Crimea, Sophia again praising him to the hilt. Plus, the Russo-Chinese talks hadn't even started. So surely now, something had to give. And give it did. Sophia had arranged for a mass to be held in Golitsyn's honour, but Peter refused to attend. And he also made sure to tell anyone who would listen what he thought about Golitsyn's so-called victories and the Regency regime, which in his mind had now outlived its purpose. And so with suspicions rising on both sides and talk of the latest rift spreading through the court, Sophia realised that something had to be done, and so she persuaded one of the few remaining loyal Streltsy commanders, a certain Fyodor Shakraviti, that it would be best for everyone, well, not everyone, but you know what I mean, that Peter be dealt with, in inverted commas. Shaklaviti set off with a contingent of troops, but word reached Peter and he managed to escape to a monastery and from there he got a message to his mother Natalia for her and his personal guards regiments to join him. He then demanded that Sophia give up Shaklaviti. She refused and then played the card that she'd played back in 1682. Tsar Ivan was in danger, but this time... No one listened. No one reacted. Even the handful of Streltsy that had remained loyal to her melted away. And a few days later, Peter persuaded the foreign mercenaries under their Scots commander, Patrick Gordon, to come over to his side. So the die was cast and for Sophia, the game was over. Shaklaviti was arrested, tortured and beheaded. Galitsin, who luckily had a cousin... Boris Galitsyn, who was part of Peter's faction, who put in a good word for him, was exiled. And Sophia, the great sovereign lady, was arrested and put safely, and for the time being, comfortably away in a convent. And incidentally, her sister Martha managed to escape sanction or punishment for now. And as for Ivan, well, Peter had a soft spot for his half-brother, and he made sure to tell him about everything that had happened, and most importantly tell the poor man and his wife, Preskovia, that he was still a Tsar and that they were both safe. Whether Ivan understood or not, we don't know. But anyway, he had a new mouth to feed, although again, whether he'd been anything to do with his daughter Maria, biologically, is open to question. Something we'll come back to. And talking of extra mouths to feed, in February 1690, 
Peter's wife, Eudoxia, gave birth to a child. And this time the gods smiled because Peter now had a son named Alexei after his grandfather. And so, to all intents and purposes, the Narishkins had won. And apart from a 10-year period from 1830, sorry, 1730 to 1740, where they'd made a brief reappearance, the Miloslavskis had lost. And that is where we'll be leaving things for this week. Next time, we'll be looking at the overall position of Russia and its neighbours in 1689. And then when we get back to the main story, we'll be kicking off another multi-part series. And this time, it's all about Peter. And my word, what a ride it's going to be. So until next time then, dear listeners, take care and I'll speak to you all soon.